0: Welcome to The Art of Range, a podcast focused on rangelands and the people who manage them. I'm your host, Tip Hudson, range and livestock specialist with Washington State University Extension. The goal of this podcast is education and conservation through conversation. Find us online at artofrange.com. My guest today on The Art of Range is Cliff Mass., Cliff is a climatologist at the University of Washington, or maybe an atmospheric scientist. I think the extent of my brainstorming on these categories ends at meteorology, climatology, and atmospheric science.
1: Uh, good morning, Cliff, and welcome. Good morning, and I am an atmospheric scientist.
0: Great. How? What was your pathway to becoming an atmospheric scientist? I tend to think that Rangeland Ecology is a bit of a niche field, but... Atmospheric science seems to me uh, kind of the same.
1: Well, I always liked weather, even from me as a young child, but I I majored in physics at Cornell, and then I went to get my PhD here at the University of Washington in atmospheric sciences.
0: I'm a, f- a fan of weather. I find myself uh, wanting to be outside whenever there's extreme weather. If it's 105 degrees in Ellensburg, uh, I want to be out in it, and in the wintertime, I just assume it'd be snowy and cold than 35 and rainy. I know you get a fair bit of 35 and rainy in Seattle. Cliff, there are several climate features that I have believed to be unique to Washington State, which I find interesting having grown up in northern Arkansas where there's not nearly so much climate variation within a really short distance. And so I want to know if you can uh, confirm or deny these rumored phenomena. Uh, The first is that I live in Ellensburg, which is about halfway between the Cascade Crest, uh, which I believe receives 120 annual inches of precipitation. And then uh, the Columbia River is about 30 miles to my east, and there they receive about six inches of precipitation. And I think that in that 80 miles, that represents one of the steepest rain shadows in the continental U.S. Is that true?
1: It's a major one, but there's another one even closer to me, and that's the Olympic rain shadow, where Mm. you have as much as 200 inches of rain on the upper windward slopes of the Olympics and declining to around 14, 15 inches in swim you know, in the order of dozens of miles away. So, so we have real, really profound rain shadows here. We have a lot of enhancement of precipitation on the windward side of mountains, and then it dries out rapidly as you get to the lee side.
0: Wow, I didn't know Squim received that little precipitation. Well, that's related to my another question. Uh, I also think that we have the only temperate rainforest, true rainforest in North America, which is, I think, defined by having more than two in, 200 inches of annual precip. Is that right?
1: Well, I'm not sure about that, but we do have rainforests on the windward side of our mountains, uh, particularly Olympics, they're, they're profound. I mean, there's some other places in the world have these mid-latitude rain, uh, rainforests, and that, that includes South America. So hmm. know, we're not alone, but we definitely have ones here.
0: And then the, from an agricultural perspective – Uh, we have a pretty warm climate for our latitude. It it seems as if you follow this latitude to the east of us, and every state east of us has uh, much more severe cold winter temperatures. And the combination of the long growing season due to our high latitude in summertime and the relatively mild climate results in us being able to grow a pretty wide variety of crops. And in fact, I think Washington state – has the highest number of minor crops for which we are the leading producer in the nation. Am I right about the the latitude and the mild climate?
1: Well, we we have a mild climate and that's because we're downstream of the ocean. So... You know, the Pacific Ocean, you know, keeps our, our climate mild. Um, this would also be true in Europe, you know, where they're downstream of, of the Atlantic that's warmed by the Gulf Stream, moving water up there. So, you know, when you're on the western side of continents, you tend to be mild. As you go into the eastern side of the continents, you get much colder. And that's accentuated around here because we have these mountain barriers like the Cascades and the Rockies that keep the cold air from moving towards the coast.
0: Hmm. Well, I'm accustomed to asking questions where I have at least some idea of what the answer is or a topic that I know something about, but i'm I know almost nothing about this, so I'm interested in hearing from you what are the major drivers of the atmosphere that brings about the weather in the western u s uh, and and the northwest in particular I tend to think in terms of you know vegetation types or biomes and those are clearly caused by the weather that we receive but um what are the things that, that result in, you know, in terms of the sources of moisture or the air masses that come uh, across the West? Where does that diversity come from and, and what are the sources of uh, the climate, the weather we receive here?
1: Well, that's an easy question. There are really two major factors that control the weather and climate here. Uh, it's the Pacific Ocean, which is relatively mild and which doesn't change temperature very much over the year, and the mountains. Uh, The mountains protect us from the cold air of the interior and the mountains produce all kinds of local weather features, everything from rain shadows and windward enhancement to convergence zones and you name it. So we, you know, our weather is really controlled by those two factors and everything else is detail.
0: Describe a bit what windward enhancement means. That means that on the side of the mountains that receive the incoming wind and air masses, Am I right that the air masses get pushed up into colder atmosphere and that causes precipitation?
1: So what happens is, you know, we have a, you have a mountain barrier, and if the air is coming from the west, as it does here in the mid-latitudes, the air is forced to rise by the mountains. And as the air rises, it goes from higher pressure at lower elevations to lower pressure higher up. And the air expands. And when it expands, it cools. And eventually it cools enough that it becomes saturated and you get clouds and precipitation. So the windward side is the side of the mountain barrier that's facing the wind. So that's where the air goes up. You get clouds and precipitation. Then as the air goes across the crest and down, it tends to sink it's going from lower pressure to higher pressure. It's getting compressed. When air gets compressed, it warms. Uh, the, the relative humidity tends to drop, the clouds evaporate, and you tend to have a rain shadow. So windward side is facing the winds, leeward side is the opposite side of the wind. And that explains a lot of the precipitation variation here in the Northwest.
0: Right, one of the, one of the major features in rangeland ecology in the western US is the the fact that not only is much of the west relatively dry but that annual precipitation is fairly variable from year to year and therefore uh, net primary production in plant communities is can be pretty variable and somewhat unpredictable uh, because of our wintertime time our, because of our winter precipitation pattern in the Pacific Northwest some of that unpredictability is reduced but but this interannual variability in precipitation uh, has really been accepted as a major driver of vegetation change that often is more significant than management. In other words, if you look at uh, landscape change over time, most of the changes can be attributed to climate variables rather than management variables. And you know, one, of the, uh, one of the predicted effects of climate change for this geographical region is increasing variability from what is already uh, somewhat high variability, at least on the east side of the, of the coastal ranges. Uh, what do you say about that?
1: Well, first, the variability here on the west coast depends on your latitude. Uh, the precipitation is much more variable as you go south into California because there are depends on getting these intermittent uh, atmospheric rivers that drop a lot of the precipitation in a, in a limited number of days. So variability is much greater to the south. It's not so much up here where, you know, we if we don't get atmospheric rivers, we get other storms. So, you know, it tends to be much less variable up where we are. I think it's really uncertain whether global warming is going to change variability much in terms of our meteorology. So, I think the jury is still out about that.
0: Mm. Well, the recently and by recently, I mean maybe the last five to 10 years. It seems that the news media regularly attribute every weather event or every weather phenomenon that seems at all unusual uh, to climate change. And it, where, where we live in a place that has um, uh, vegetation types that are prone to wildfire and weather that supports wildfire, it seems a little bit misleading to blame any wildfire in deserts and dry forest types on climate change. Uh, I, You know, even, even talking with our farmers and ranchers on this side of the state, uh, they, they believe that they see climate changing. So my question is, is what we're experiencing now in terms of both weather and weather-related events like fire uh, within the historic range of variability? Or is there enough, um, what we might call, anomalous behavior in the frequency of fire, or the size of fire, or the severity of fire, wind events, you know, summertime highs, to say that we're currently experiencing uh, the changes associated with global warming.
1: Right. Well, you have to separate out fires from weather. Um, they're not the same thing. Um, the frequency of fires can vary by a number of reasons. Uh, the fact that we've suppressed fire in many locations for almost a century. Uh, the invasive grasses, many of them very flammable that have moved in. The fact there are more human beings starting fires. So there's all kinds of issues about fires uh, that are independent of weather and climate. So you've got to be very careful about you know, assuming any kind of ver- change in wildfires has anything to do with weather and climate. Um, I think the media tends to be a little bit over exuberant about blaming everything on climate change. Now, global warming is a, is a serious issue, but it's one in which the major warming is ahead of us. Um, right now, the Northwest has warmed up maybe one or two degrees Fahrenheit over the, over, over the last 40, 50 years. And you know, we, we could have caused a, a significant portion of that. But you know, our climate change here is lessened, it's weakened, it's delayed because of the ocean. The, the ocean is, is a tremendous flywheel that slows things down. So I think you know, there, there have been some changes due to climate change. I think there's been uh, – due to human-caused climate change, and there's probably a little bit of warming. But I think we have to be extremely careful before blaming extreme weather events or other changes on, on climate change.
0: One of the more obvious recent weather events that has drawn quite a bit of commentary about climate change is the fires in California and to a lesser degree – uh, at least in terms of media coverage, the ones in Washington. Uh, what are your thoughts on the drivers of the California fires this year?
1: Right, and and I've I actually been doing research on this on this area, and I've published papers on uh, the Wine Country fire and the Campfire, and I'm work, I'm working on the, some of the others. I think in California it's a very mixed bag. I think the fire suppression over decades has been important. I think the invasive grasses are important. Um, I think the human ignition of fires is very important. A lot of the fires are being caused or are, are ignited by power lines. So I think, you know, even in California, it, there's no way one can say that, you know, most of the increase of fires is due to climate change. You know, one thing I should point out is that fire is a natural part of the ecosystem in the West and in many locations. Uh, Fire would burn every 10 or 15 years, especially in the eastern slopes of of the Cascades or or in the Sierra. So, fire is normal here and what wasn't normal is the fact we suppress fire for such a long period of time.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, What about the Washington fires? This year, most of the fires were on non-forested plant community types, uh, what I would call mostly rangeland fires. And I want to say uh, you have written that that was driven by uh, easterly winds. Can you say more about that?
1: That's right. Um, here in Washington State, almost all the fires that we had the, and the catastrophic burning was uh, the Labor Day event on, on the, uh, the 7th and 8th in that, in that period of September. These were mainly grass fires. And grass fires generally have very little to do with climate change. In this case, it had everything to do with strong winds, and we had record-breaking winds that pushed into the area from the north and northeast. And those, I think, are, were the key factor in, in it, both in, igniting the fires and then causing them to explode and move very rapidly.
0: Uh, you recently did a, a fresh analysis of climate projections out to 2050 using uh, a number of models all put together in what I think you call an ensemble. Uh, what did that turn up? And can you describe that methodology?
1: That's right. I'm involved in an effort to basically try to look forward to the year 2100. What, what, would, what will global warming do to our region? And we're making the assumption that uh, CO2 in the atmosphere keeps on going up as fast as it has been. So you know, mankind does nothing. What, what does it look like? And we've run high-resolution weather forecasting models driven by global climate models for 130 years. And so what we have found is that there will be warming that will actually will speed up a bit in, during the century. So the region will warm up uh, and it'll be considerably warmed up by the end of this century. A uh, snowpack will drop substantially. Um, precipitation won't change that much. We'll get a little bit wetter, but we think that the, the heaviest precipitation events will get heavier. That's something that we do expect in the global warming. So we've basically gone through the, the, you know, this exercise and, and found what, we, what, what global warming implies for, for the whole region over the, over, over the rest of the century.
0: In the South, they would say that there's a hundred different ways to skin that cat. How, uh, how did you go about that analysis?
1: Well, basically, you know, we have a lot of experience with weather forecasting models and we ran high resolution weather forecasting models for 130 years driven by the global climate models and we did this many times for different global climate models to see what signal is common to all of them and so you know we've done this and and what we've done is different than other people because we ran these simulations at a high enough resolution to get the rain shadows to get the windward enhancement to get the gap winds and so you know we have shown that th- you know, the, planet, the planet's warming up is, is happening here too. It's a little slower here because of the Pacific Ocean, but we will warm up this century. And issues such as the snowpack, you know, snowpack will will decline. And that's, a, that's a, of concern to agriculture. Uh, precipitation will not decline. That's also important for agriculture.
0: Yeah. On that note, what do you see as some of the alternatives to mankind does nothing, both from a you know, a, a general uh, societal perspective and also from an agricultural perspective. What can we do to mitigate this?
1: Well, we can do a lot. I mean, first, even if we keep on putting CO2 in the atmosphere, we could do a lot of adaptation. So we can prepare ourselves to deal with these issues. So, for instance, be less snowpack in the mountains but we'll have as much precipitation, we could build more reservoir capacity, particularly on the eastern side of the Cascades. And some people have already uh, suggested this, you know, the, the, the Yakima project is an example. So we can store more water and therefore have the water we need for agriculture. Um, uh, so there's that adaptation. We can make sure we, we move away from being right near the coastline, where the coastline's low as uh, sea level rises, so there's a variety of adaptation things we can do. Probably the most important one is the forests. We could manage the forests to restore them to what they were like 150 years ago. So get rid of the debris, bring back fire, thin them out. So, so bring the forest back to what they were naturally. That would go a long way to stopping the catastrophic fires. And then, of course, is the issue of CO2 in the atmosphere. And you know, quite frankly, I'm, I'm optimistic about that. I think we can use nuclear power, either fission and later fusion, to supply much of our energy that we need. And then we, could, once we have a lot of energy from, from nuclear energy, we could actually br- take the CO2 out of the atmosphere. There's a technology called sequestration that allows us to do that. So I, I think that global warming actually is a technical problem that we can probably so- solve technically. And in the meantime, we can do a lot of adaptation to... To protect us against you know some of the impacts that are that are occurring now and during the next few decades.
0: I like it. Uh, where can people read some more about what you're doing if they're interested in learning about some of these topics in more detail?
1: Well, I do describe you know some of some of the work in my blog, so cliffmasslowercase.blogspot.com, and you know some of the things I'm talking about are already in the published literature. So there's papers you can search for and, and you can read about this kind of material.
0: Well, Cliff, I appreciate your time today. It was great to have you on, and I uh, wish you the best.
1: Great. It's good talking to you.
0: Thank you for listening to the Art of Range podcast. You can subscribe to and review the show through iTunes or your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. Just search for Art of Range. If you have questions or comments for us to address in a future episode, send an email to show at artofrange.com. For articles and links to resources mentioned in the podcast, please see the show notes at artofrange.com. Listener feedback is important to the success of our mission, empowering rangeland managers. Please take a moment to fill out a brief survey at artofrange.com. This podcast is produced by Connors Communications in the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. The project is supported by the University of Arizona. And funded by the Western Center for Risk Management Education through the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture.